I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. Today we got an awesome guest. He is a team leader, a platoon commander, a troop commander, and a task unit commander. Over 20 years of naval special warfare uh, experience, he was enlisted and he became an officer. God. Why? Why? And then uh, he operated in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he was a platoon commander, uh, basically doing counterinsurgency. Uh, also in the, he also did some time in the Philippines, it looks like. Uh, this is none other than Jack Carr himself. And there's a, hey, Jack, thanks for coming, buddy. Oh man, thanks so much for having me on. It's always great to, <laughs> to talk to you. This is what I love most about podcasts, that it gives us an excuse just to hang out for a little bit and catch up and talk. And, you know, because otherwise we'd be rushing to, you know, the next thing, uh, you know, yeah. today and we wouldn't just take a break to sit down, chill, turn the rest of it off because the phone is turned off, the email is turned off, things aren't beeping at me. And it's chaos all the time. So it's so nice to sit down and, and get to chill for a second and catch up. No doubt. You are a busy, busy guy. Um, and I purposely didn't mention your post-retirement uh, accomplishments because now it's becoming the thing that people know you for. And that is you are a multi uh, number one New York Times bestselling author of a fiction series that uh, I, I got to say, I tell people all the time, Jack is becoming the new Tom Clancy. Uh, you can only say that because he's dead. There is no other Tom Clancy, of course, but, um, the way you're moving, man, it certainly seems like you're, uh, you're doing your, your good progress to becoming a guy like him. Uh, you stay in it long enough. That's for sure. Thank you. Um, so first question here, uh, with the books and, uh, I know people get it mixed up. You got the Reese is the easy part to remember. Your name is Jack. His name is James. That's right. Then there's the Johns and, you know, people get the re the, the first part I've, I've seen uh, get stumbled upon. But James, Reese, is he a, is he, as far as an operator is concerned, in comparison to you, the author, because you created that character, would you say he is a bigger badass than you? Um, is he equal to? How do you he better, judge him? He better be a bigger badass than I am if he's going to survive all these things that I <laughs> that I throw him into in the novels. Um, but yeah, no, it, it really helped being able to uh, not have to interview somebody like, hey, what is it? What was it like to go into Ramadi as a sniper in the height at the height of the war if I had not yeah. had that experience? And then interview that person and then take those answers and then they'd go through you know whatever filters that I had as far as my past experience, other people maybe that I'd interviewed, biases that I had, whatever, and then get spit back out into a fictional narrative. So instead of doing all that, I can just go right 
from, oh, what was it like to be in Ramadi and out of the war and go into those positions? Oh, I got it. Okay. And then I just take those emotions and those feelings and apply them to a completely fictional scenario, say in Kamchaka, Russia or whatever else. Yeah. And I just take those emotions and apply them to similar scenarios. What was it like to be ambushed in Baghdad in 2006? Uh, okay. I don't have to talk to somebody about it and then it kind of conceptualize it, internalize it, and then apply it to my narrative. Oh no, I can just remember what it was like and then apply it directly. So, yeah. uh, but he's a, he's a, a much better seal, a much better operator than I ever was, uh, <laughs> but uh, a very similar background. So I get to tap into those things that of you, course. you are very good at that. I am not so good at because uh, you spent time on that darker side of special operations and the intelligence side of the house, that sort of thing. Um, and I get to have my character stumble around a little bit when it comes to picking a lock or to doing some surveillance or that sort of thing. He has to kind of figure some of that stuff out or get help. Uh, and then some of the other things he's very good at, like kicking in those doors and putting bullets in people's faces, yeah. uh, doing the sniper stuff, like that stuff, stuff that I am more comfortable with. So, so is he. So it's uh, it's, so it's fun for me to get to explore uh, what it would be like to be in these certain scenarios based off my background, my strengths, my weaknesses. Uh, but then, of course, it's all fiction. So if I'm not as good at it, I get to I get to work with that in the world of fiction, make <laughs> yeah. it a lot better than I ever was. But it's a it's a it's uh, super fun for me. I absolutely love it. And it's other than being a SEAL, it's the, the other thing that I wanted to do in life. Yeah, no doubt. And if for those of you listening don't know what Jack Carr has written so far, I'm going to go through the list here. It's uh, it's pretty impressive considering he's only been retired five, six years now, about the same as me, right? Uh, yeah, 2016. Yeah, so we started with uh, the terminal list, then we rolled into True Believer, then Savage Son, and now, right now, out on the market is The Devil's Hand. All four of these books have just crushed every list they've been on. Uh, I guess out of all these, which, what's your favorite so far? That's so tough because I thought about writing Savage Son since sixth grade when I first read The Most Dangerous Game, which is a short story by Richard Connell written in 1924. And uh, I really wanted to start with that one. And as I started this process, I wrote five, six, seven, eight different ideas down, put them on the table, like one page executive summaries. And I wanted to dive into Savage Son right away, but I knew that the characters weren't developed enough to explore that storyline and explore the themes that I explore in Savage Stun, which are really the dark side of man through that dynamic of Hunter and Hunted. And even back in sixth grade, I knew that one day I'd write a novel that paid homage to Most Dangerous Game. So, uh, so that's what I wanted to start with, but exercise some tactical patience there. And I knew that I had to come out of the gate strong with a terminal. A lot of patience. Like, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Just hard hitting, visceral, primal, violent, uh, dark, gritty, and something that was most likely to get noticed by a New York publisher uh, that would allow me to continue to write. So, uh, and then at the end of that book, I know the characters still weren't ready for Savage Son. Uh, James Reese had to go on a journey of redemption at that point. Yeah. Go on a uh, uh, learn to live again, find his next mission in life, next passion in life. And of course, the government drags him back in to service um, with a little bit of blackmail. But then at the end of that novel, then he was ready for Savage Son. So, um, so I'd say Gosh, they're all they're all so different. Like the second one, True Believer, I got to Mozambique, got to go to Mozambique, put boots on the ground out there, incorporate a lot of that experience into that storyline. Uh, for Savage Son, I got to go to Kamchatka, Russia, just south of Siberia, spend time there, incorporate that in. Um, but this latest one, The Devil's Hand, I didn't really expect this at the outset, but it might be my favorite just because of how much work went into it. Um, the others, you know, I, I, I had experience hunting, I had experience downrange, I had these different experiences that I could apply. Well, I had no touch point with biological weapons. 
I had a touch point, of course, with red selling or putting myself in the enemy's position um, and thinking about what the enemy is learning by watching us in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, wherever else. What are they learning? What are they incorporating into battle plans? And that forms the basis. But the catalyst that moves the story forward is a bioweapon. And I had no yeah. points with that in the military. So I thought, oh, you do a little bit of research. Well, I did a lot of research uh, and I had to make sure that if somebody that was in that field, uh, doctor, scientist, researcher, uh, somebody that oversaw these different programs were to read it, I wanted them to say, wow, this guy did his research um, and he, he might not have this exactly right, but oh, it's pretty darn close. And yeah. I've had people reach out because when you're researching bioweapons and you talk to somebody about it, uh, they leave some things out because it's kind of semi-sensitive, not kind of, it is very sensitive. But what one person leaves out someone else might put in. And so if you talk to enough people and then you do enough research, <laughs> yeah. and you go into all these medical journals, you, it's kind of like putting a puzzle together. And, yeah. and so that required so much time, energy, and effort, especially during COVID when the kids were back in the house, uh, when I was really doing the meat of this writing. Um, so I think maybe devil's hand might be my, my favorite quote unquote, just because of how much work it took having the family right here outside the doors to the office, helping me write this novel, uh, in a, and by that <laughs> interrupting me every five minutes. Um, love them. Um, but, uh, so it was just because of the, uh, of how hard it was to do during, uh, during COVID and how much research was involved in it. I think uh, devil's hand might be, might be the one. Nice. Yeah. Well, all of them are obviously pretty cool in the fact that they, uh, they take this guy and it, it kind of connects into, you know, my little piece of violent nomad. If people ask and they're, they're very aware of your books, we kind of in the same circle. So people, when they ask, what is a violent nomad? I'm like, it's James Reese, man. That's pretty much it. You know, very capable person that uses violence in order to do good deeds to bad people, you know, to a certain degree, unless he's crazy, you know? So then, uh, any of the crazy stuff don't count that part as a violent nomad. Uh, but, um, no, the first time yeah, I heard the, violent nomad, that's exactly what I thought. I was like, Oh, this is amazing. Like violent. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought of it before that exact term before. And I think I incorporated it into one of the novels. I think I, I worked it in there. Um, but I, when I first heard that, I was like, yes, this is yeah. it. Like violent nomad. Well, it applies. You know, I most people don't know the backstory to Violent Nomad, and that is, I it's a it's a it was a kind of a code name I gave a program I was working on when I was at the command, but I provided the code name. It wasn't provided by SSOs or any of your security officers, right? It was just something I gave the program, and it had this naked warrior base to it, where you can take a guy, put him overseas with nothing, right? He's business casual, flies business class, but he he but yet he can do everything that, you know, 20 22 guys with body armor night vision can do. Um so he he re, he resources everything from his environment. Um there was a training pipeline. There was a lot of stuff built into this and then when I kind of, you know, took it up the flagpole, people were laughing at me like, "Uh, this looks like an assassin program." I'm like, "Yeah, exactly." They're like, no. <laughs> so I kept the Violent Nomad name for myself and obviously using it for uh, some cool branded gear. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I love all that stuff. Yeah. You do. You making, I mean, the old MacGyver type stuff. Going yes. Crazy, you know, just being able to make all these bombs and you know, just, just with nothing and survive with nothing. Uh, and point, I was just, uh, I just rushed in to do this because we were down, we had to drive down to Salt Lake because we, um, uh, 
we're going to a place in Mendocino's location next week with a family that uh, we had to get a COVID test for. You have to show it when you get there. So mm-hmm. we went down and we're waiting in line to do this rapid COVID test. They have National Guard actually down there doing this drive-through thing, which is pretty interesting. But uh, I was talking to my daughter and we we're looking at the car because she's going to start driving my car soon. And I'm like, okay, here's where the Winkler like tool is right here. You can grab this. You can break the window. Here's where all these <laughs> nice. are. Here's your tourniquet. Here you can have these things in the back of the seats and all this. And she's like, hey, dad, you can break a window with the headrest too. And I was like, oh, and then she like yeah. turned around and pulled the headrest out, you know, to show me like how to hit in the corner with the, with the little things that go down in the back of the seats. And I was, I was so proud. It was awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That's in, uh, I've got that in, I think book one and book two, different okay. ways of using a headrest. That's awesome. <laughs> Give her your calendar, uh, the, the ones that you pull off, you know, the day by day ones. Oh yeah. Those are so great. Do you still have those? Are those still coming out? Cause those are fantastic. Yeah, they, they'll probably come out for Combat Edition here pretty soon. It's just, nice. you know, the deal. It, you know, you get things going and thousand irons in the fire and you got to focus on the hottest ones first, you know. But yeah, yeah those are some great. more calendars. Really obviously a Christmas because everybody, you know, it's it's such a no-brainer for everybody to like, yeah. boom, we give this kid, especially, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Like it's such a great thing, not just for adults, but for those people, kids that are curious uh, in that kind of very, um, you know, impactful, impressionable type stage. So yeah. I that's the time to sell them, you know, and that's, that's the goal is get people sold on safety and security and put it at the forefront of their mind, you know, early oh. on so that it just becomes, you know, a habit and they don't even know, right. We, I tell people all the time, there was a time when, you know, I had to remember to put a seatbelt on, you know, cause that law came out while we were probably just starting to drive. And now you take your, you put a seatbelt on, you take it off, you know, probably dozens of times in a day and you don't even remember doing it anymore. And that's, that's, that's the goal of like most of the stuff I do is how do you make it a habit so that you, you're doing it you just have, and you have no idea and that way you're always good to go. But you know, obviously it, it takes repetition, 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 like anything in life. More from the author of New York times bestseller, the terminal list, Jack Carr after the break. Yeah, it's um, we trained ourselves out of having to do that sort of thing. Like, you know, for the only the for the slimmest part of human history, have we been able to call nine one one, or have we been able to go to the grocery store? You know, for yeah, for human history, guess what you had to do? You had to go kill an elk, uh, or if someone attacked <laughs> yeah. you or breaking into your house, guess what you had to do? Oh, you had to kill them. Uh, you know, but uh, so it's only for the last, you know, let's say. Let's just say it. Let's just throw out a hundred years, you know, yeah. maybe whatever, um, where you haven't had to be self-reliant and, uh, and have those skills. So, uh, so I think they come back pretty quick, uh, especially uh, when you, like we've seen over this last year with COVID with, and, uh, uh, civil unrest, uh, all this crazy, uh, yeah. political no. stuff that we've been in. Uh, so a lot of people have, have kind of, drifted back towards what was so natural for almost all of human history. Yeah. You've, you've hit it right on the head. That self-rescue piece, self-sufficiency is, it went away and now it's coming back. And I feel like it's only going to get more and more popular as we move down. In fact, that's my next book is all about self-sufficiency. And uh, I just finished it up and handed over the manuscript. This time it's a penguin random house. It'll be coming out spring of 22, but I like you, probably one of the most enjoyable parts of putting a book together is going, traveling, studying, and learning something new. Um, so out of the places you've gone to, you know, get the facts and get the ground truth, what's your favorite so far? 
Mozambique was special just because I hadn't um, submitted the first book to Simon and Schuster yet, and I always knew that I was going to write two books for sure because there's that story of John Grisham who wrote A Time to Kill first, and yeah. he wrote The Firm, but he couldn't give A Time to Kill away. But then he writes The Firm, that thing takes off, Tom Cruise is in the movie, and now we've had a John Grisham book every year since. But uh, if he'd stopped at A Time to Kill, which I, is arguably his best work, I haven't read all, I haven't read some of the later ones, but um, but of the ones that I did read for those 10, 15 years that I was reading every single one that came out, well, yeah. Time to Kill is certainly certainly up there. So for me, I internalized that and I thought, okay, uh, even if this first one doesn't get picked up, I'm going with that second because The Firm example with John Grisham. Oh, so I was already on a flight to, uh, to Mozambique before I even uh, submitted the book to Simon and Schuster, the first novel. So, uh, so I like that. I like just risking it. And then I remember you had to write down your profession. I think when you were coming going into either either Mozambique <laughs> or South Africa, forget. Yeah. But you go to South Africa first, then you hop up to Mozambique. But uh, uh, you had to write down your profession, and I wrote writer. And uh, of Stephen Pressfield, uh, turning pro, he has a few books on creativity, and one's like, "No, you make a decision to become a professional, live it, breathe it." That's what you do. Yeah. So I wrote down writer, and so I took a photo of that on my phone. But uh, so that one was special because of that. But then I went back about a year later, and or no, maybe two years later, and I uh, went down to South Africa and helped train up an anti-poaching unit. They were switching over to Glocks and M4s and have a little bit of experience with those uh, weapon systems. So I went down there really because I wanted to get to talk to some of the guys in that anti-poaching unit. I wanted to take some of their experience, apply that to characters in future novels. And uh, it was really cool. You know, I, I learned so much more from them then they learned from me. They put me to a tracking course. Uh, a lot of these guys were older, so they got the tail end of the bush wars in the 90s. Oh, and, wow. Of course, they'd grown up tracking animals for food because they had to, like we just talked about. Uh, but then they caught tail end of the bush wars, so they're doing that tactical tracking, that man tracking, um, where you're actually engaging. Um, and then they came back from that, and you had all these veterans essentially unemployed in South Africa that now had combat experience. So the government was like, hey, let's channel this in a productive way. And they brought a lot of them into what we would see as CSI. So crime scene investigations type stuff. So mm -hmm. they took that experience of tracking animals then tracking humans. And then they added that psychological aspect in an urban environment to it. So not just tracking blood or whatever else, but getting into the mind of that adversary, of that suspect, figuring out where he's going to go next. So now you have all this uh, this urban experience, you have all this outdoor experience, you have all that with these guys, but then they aged out of that. And so mm -hmm. now they got picked up by a lot of these private uh, game reserves that are protecting some of the last rhino on earth. So uh, it was yeah, great going cool. to be able to do that. And then going to Russia. I mean, what was interesting about Mozambique and South Africa, everybody wanted to tell me the story of their country. They wanted to talk about the politics. They wanted to talk about religions. They wanted to talk about Chinese influence, both legal and illegal. Um, they wanted to talk about poaching. They wanted to talk about the trade of wildlife. They wanted to talk about all this stuff. Then I get to Russia and I look, of course I leave my phone behind. Uh, and, uh, Oh, we need to talk about crypto too. We need to make that call. I have mine over here. I just need to activate it. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, but I left behind my iPhone, left behind my computer because I didn't want, you know, Russian intelligence services to be pulling out who knows what from my computer mm -hmm. emails people have sent me over the years. So I got to just, uh, you know, I just brought a notebook, but nobody there wanted to talk. And thinking about it, I was like, oh, obviously, for most of Russian history, if someone was asking you pointed questions, the kind that you'd ask if you were writing a political thriller, uh, you weren't long for this world. You were off to the gulag or the shooting, you know, the firing squad. You were done. So yeah. they were very tight lipped over there. But eventually they, they opened up. So, um, so, yeah, I love I loved doing the travel stuff after this fifth book. 
um, hoping to get to Israel, hoping to get um, to uh, Montenegro, Croatia, uh, somewhere in Central Europe as well. So I'm trying to figure out what countries are open, what you have to do uh, to get into these different countries now with COVID and all that sort of thing. So working on that, hopefully for in the summer, early fall. Nice. Well, I'm sure people are looking forward to that one. Um, now let's dial back a little bit. We got to talk about a little bit of your history. So you're an enlisted guy gone officer. So, um, during your enlisted time, was it, what was the, probably the craziest thing you did? Well, it would definitely be after September 11th doing those shipboarding operations. Like I don't have to think too hard about that. My mind immediately went to bars and things like that (laughs) as a new guy in platoon. But, uh, uh, my second platoon was September 11th and we were about two weeks into that second deployment. And, uh, we thought we were going to go right into Afghanistan, but instead we loaded up a plane in Guam. We flew in and ended up taking over the shipboarding operations for SEAL team three. And those guys ended up going into, into Afghanistan. But it was the only time during those 20 years that I got to do an actual real world shipboarding operation, uh, multiple. And, uh, what we would do is those ships would come out of Iraq and because of the UN oil embargo, then they take a hard left-hand turn for Iranian waters. And if memory serves, you had about 20 minutes or so, depending on sea state and all the rest of it, to get on those things, take them over, turn them around back into international waters, and then turn them over to a prize crew, which are people that actually know how to drive big ships, which are like class three tankers loaded up with this oil. Um, so it was interesting to do that because they put these passive countermeasures in place. Uh, and for people listening, a passive countermeasure would be something that is not directly like shooting at you. So they take barbed wire, string it up all over the deck. So if you tried to throw a fast rope out, it would get fouled. So you couldn't fast rope onto the deck. That meant you had to come in from the ocean, which meant that in these crazy sea states, it's a lot harder because they would always wait until it was be, they knew it was going to be very difficult for you and a small craft to come up alongside and board. And then if you did do that, then they cut the ladders off on all the le- on all these different le- levels. So instead of being able to scamper up, even once you're on board these things, scamper up to the next level, you couldn't do that because they were cut off. And then all the windows and doors were welded shut as well. So you have to get in there with an exothermic torch, with the saw, usually a combination of both, and uh, and get in there to take these things over. So you're on the clock to do this. Yeah. You get yeah. waters, you've got to get off that thing ASAP. And uh, so it was pretty interesting. So as an enlisted guy, that was my first uh, like real world type operation. So I would say that was probably the the craziest thing I did as an enlisted guy, because it's like, a, I would equate it to being a police officer, pulling somebody over in the middle of the night on a freeway or deserted high, whatever. And you're walking up to it and you're not exactly sure who's in there, how many people are in there, yeah. um, what their you know, mindset is. You just, you're walking up on an unknown. So same thing here, middle of the night, uh, rough sea state, you're getting on board and you're not exactly sure what you're going to find. So, um, so that was probably the craziest thing I did as an enlisted guy. Yeah, I agree. And I, I always love those operations. I was at team three. And so we did plenty, uh, on my deployments pre nine 11. And, uh, I, I just always felt like that's like true frogman shit right there. You know, you're taking down boats or, you know, to kick off the war in Iraq, you know, we took down the largest gas oil platform in the world. And, uh, you know, that too, like coming from the surface, going up this huge structure in the middle of the ocean, and making it yours. It's like, I tell you say police officer, I say pirates. I'm like, you're just straight up pirates. You yeah, know, and you got your, it. you got your ninja hoods on and your MP fives yep. and you're that's just exactly ready to right. go. <laughs> Before we switched over to M4. So yeah. MP fives and, uh, and, uh, SIG P226s with a light on there, white light on there, <laughs> yeah. and all these little things, that light, because even MP5, which everybody, you know, is very small. Uh, some of those little spaces are even hard for that. Yeah. 
swing it and get that pistol out and use that light to get in these weird little corners. And, you know, those, those guys hide. They yeah, hide. they do. And I remember the first generation of holsters that came out for our, our pistols with lights on it. And the lights, keep in mind, were bigger than they are now. And these holsters just... They look like it, they definitely would break your femur if you fell on them just right. <laughs> yeah, they were large. That's for sure. Yeah, I can't have all that stuff. I kept every single holster. I kept every single light. I kept everything that wasn't serialized. Um, and, uh, and then some. Well, yeah, and then some. <laughs> Maybe. But uh, then I had to put it in my friend's garage before we left Coronado. And I put it in my friend's garage. Of course, he gets divorced. Of course, the wife moves all the stuff. And of course, it's all <laughs> now. Like I kept all that stuff for 20 years. It's like drives me crazy. Uh, oh, I have, yeah. I have like my, you know, my good stuff here. But all that history of all the gear that I had for the entire 20 years, psh, gone. Oh, so, man. Brutal. Yeah, I know the feeling. I had, I, you know, I grew up in Saudi. And while I was over there in the 80s is when the first G-Shock watch came out. The very first, right? The square and one? So I, I bought it. Right? Yeah. My dad got it for me. And uh, I wore that thing until it was worn out. And then I had kept buying G-Shocks all the way up until it was time to go in the Navy. And of course, you get back in the day, SEAL Team 3, the G-Shock was issued. Then later, Suntos became super popular, uh, plus some Garmin versions, um, you know, and it's gone back and forth between Garmin and Sunto timepieces as far as what's been issued all the way up until I got out. I don't know about you, but I had a collection. And same thing, somewhere in one of my moves, that number one G-Shock oh. and then all the other G-Shocks up till, like, oh, no. you know, going in the Navy and everything gone. Like, oh. I don't know where they went. <laughs> I was like, damn it. Oh. Yeah, but, uh, I like that small one. I like that initial one, like in Buds, you know, that was on your attack board. The, yeah. Like the first G-Shock, so the, t- the square one. Square, uh, thinner. Get a bigger one. You came out, I think, in 90, I want to say 93. Or 94, uh, it came out. I think the first time I was in a movie was in Speed. Um, he might have had the square one, but I think they had a giveaway for the new one. There was like a marketing campaign for that bigger yeah. one. Yeah. So that's uh, right. That's but, right. But in Buzz, Reeves was wearing square one. And I love that that square one. I love that 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 one. So even when we got back to the team and we got issued that bigger G Shock, I still would buy the smaller G Shock. The and older I yeah. that thing for years. Um, like up until the last couple, I finally switched over to the larger. G-Shock. I would go get to, uh, what was it called? It was the, the dive supply st- shop right before you got on the Coronado Bridge as it turned there. The right, oh, yeah. The big diving bell. It's not there anymore. But I would go there and yeah, I would I get this, uh, this band. I was always a gear guy. So I'd get this nylon band made in Australia for like lifeguards, I think it was. And uh, then I put it on. I take the watch off and put it on that band. So if one of the things broke, you would still keep your watch. You right. Would, it was set up so if one of you wasn't. It gone. had that redundancy piece. Yeah, in exactly. It. Yeah. Exactly. So even yeah. down to those little things. I mean, when we're talking about gear, I mean, people. You know, <laughs> yeah. The smallest of details. They're all. They are important. Um, but yeah, I think the G-Shock might be one of the best piece of kit we ever got issued in this. Right. Yeah. And the, the watches got bigger. You know, that's where the joke. It used to be like the Rolex was like one of the original issued items to Frogman. Tudor. And, uh, and they got that Tudor there for a while. And yeah, the Tudor Rolex, and oh man, I wish I had one of those early ones. Gosh, that was amazing. I yeah. just had Ben Russ send me. Uh, they're they're just now remaking the the watches that they made during Vietnam for team guys. And, they go. Uh, it's the the Ben Russ. Uh, what they call it? The Model One, and it was issued from seven. It was right after Vietnam, so seventy something into the eighties. Oh, wow. These were right. issued to the yeah. SEAL teams. Really? I'm writing this down. Yeah. Right now. Check them out. I'll, 
Ben Ross, and I can get them. I probably can get them to hook you up. But man, they uh, they sent it to me. It's a beautiful watch. You know, it's got the sapphire crystal, and it's a you know kinetic or automatic, and great so far. Great little tool. Um, Check that out. I'm also in the market for the Seiko that uh, that the, a lot of the SF guys wore in Vietnam. Um, it was pretty big, and uh, they have a version of it in Apocalypse Now. Martin Sheen wears one in Apocalypse Now, but yeah. uh, pretty. Pretty cool. And those, when we got the Vader watches, when we got the Garmin's and the Suntos, I remember I had SEAL Team 2. I had an early version in like 2003, I think, and uh, maybe four. But anything I had to plug in, even and more so today, anything I have to plug in, it's like an instant no. Like I just right. can't plug another thing in. Like my computer over here that's just set up for my podcast, I was like, it's broken. It's not working. Like I'm on the, the phone with the people in the back there. And they're like, have you, when was the last time you plugged in this? I'm like, what? You have to plug this thing in. <laughs> Friggin' batteries. Yeah. You plug it in. And like, well, yeah. and then same thing with the keyboard. Like, you got to plug that thing in. Like, yeah. So yeah, I'm with you. That you're right, because those Suntos, man, the, the first generation, they would burn through, burn through time. You know, where yeah. either you're plugging it in or up. You know, and also the updating piece too. That's where I like old school because you don't have to yeah. update it every freaking two weeks. Yeah. No, nope. no, exactly. I love just my watch to tell time. Yeah, that's good. And also, yeah. I get to it. I, I know I don't have to go through scroll through a whole ton of stuff. <laughs> that's all right. Um, so now you you go to now. Did you do what an ad, seaman admiral, or did you just throw in for OCS because you already yeah, had your degree? Yeah, and, OCS, yeah. and uh, yeah, put in for it before September 11th. So had September 11th happened, let's say in February of 2001, then I would probably have stayed enlisted. I'm almost certain would have stayed enlisted. Um, yeah, spring of 2001, as you know, shipboardings. That, that was the deal. That was all that was going on. And team three was doing it. Um, yeah. So I was like, well, you know, not much going on. I had some, let's say, uh, leadership challenges, I guess would be the best way to put it in my uh, <laughs> yeah. two platoons. Uh, and instead of, you know, just uh, E5 Mafia, you know, complaining about it, I was like, okay, I can continue to complain about it here or I can go do something about it. And I can yeah. do it better than it was done for me. And uh, so I had that reputation established. I was a sniper already. Uh, free fall at the time, you didn't, that wasn't part of the pipeline. Um, so I, I essentially started to build that foundation of skills uh, that I thought would have then allow me to go forward um, and not be the guy that they showed in all those Vietnam movies in the eighties that would show up in Vietnam with his butter bar on and make everybody shave and then yeah, exactly. Shine the boots and then lead them right into an ambush. Like that was every 80s <laughs> yeah. officer in Vietnam uh, in those eighties movies. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I went to, went to OCS three months of uh, uh, folding underwear and t-shirts and making your bed, just like boot camp, except you're getting yelled at by a Marine instead of someone in the Navy and then right to the SEAL team too. Uh, after that. So uh, just a little bit of a break there after that, uh, that uh, post September 11th deployment, I mm -hmm. uh, came back with this. I'm pretty cool in Uzbekistan went in there and got to, as I was waiting for OCS, so I was in, not jumping into another platoon because I was going to OCS, uh, but I had a couple months to kill and I uh, got to go to Uzbekistan, which was pretty cool and helped train up what they called their Spetsnaz, but was really like border border guards uh, and do some sniper stuff with them and train them up on the dragon off. And I thought, of course, like they should be the ones training me up on the dragon off. Um, but uh, I found out when I got there, I asked them what, you know, what sniper schools they'd been to or what, you know, what kind of training they had and found out that uh, they were carrying that because it was heavier than an AK. They were in trouble. 
And so they got issued the heavier <laughs> weapon. So, okay. That's the baseline. Uh-huh. Uh, it was fantastic to be able to do that kind of training and do that research into that scope and the history of that white rifle and get behind that thing. I wish I, I want to get one at some point here, but um, it was pretty, pretty sweet. So that was cool. And then right from there I went to OCS and then right into the mix at, uh, at team two. And I was very fortunate also in that team two at the time was getting that first group of people who had uh, deployed with uh, uh, your former command um, downrange. So it had been, some of them had been in Afghanistan for essentially a year through all mm-hmm. the different squadron rotations. So we're getting some of that leadership and they saw the value of getting people downrange and getting that experience. So I got kicked out the door immediately, like right out of OCS right into as an augment and they didn't even know what an augment meant back then. They were just right. like person showing up. And luckily my green, if I had gone to green team instead of OCS, all those guys were just doing their first deployment. So they all got to give me like the thumbs up type thing because we knew each yeah. other in the enlisted days. And they're like, okay, he's cool. He's not like, you know, <laughs> regardless, I got thrown yeah, right. Yeah. And those guys really took care of me. I learned a ton from those guys. Um, and what was cool is that I went downrange with a squadron that had already been there twice. So in 2003, if you'd been, you'd already done two deployments to Afghanistan, that was a lot. And, uh, so those guys passed on, uh, some of those lessons to me and that I'll, I use those going forward and I still use them today. So I'll forever be grateful for those guys for taking me under their, under their wing. And of course I thought they were so old back then, you know, they were probably much younger than I am now. But, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Very professional, man. Uh, crazy, but professional crew of guys. I definitely had the pleasure of operating with most of them and <laughs> it's, uh, it, the wild times for sure. Um, now you say, okay, now let's get into the core of, uh, you, we've talked about books, but you know, obviously you're a very well-read guy. You've been reading your whole life. I mean, how many books you read a year? I don't know. I never kept track of it that way. Um, I have a, always had a, I've always collect, I've still have books on my shelves in front of me here that, uh, that I read back in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. Um, yeah. so I collected and, and held on to many of these books over the years, just adding to the library. Uh, a lot of the fiction that I read growing up obviously had the, the, the kind of books I'm writing today. Uh, they had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted in real life one day. So I was reading Tom Clancy and uh, Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter, all these guys who had either like SEALs as protagonists with Vietnam experience, uh, Army Special Forces with Vietnam experience, some sort of a maybe a Marine sniper Vietnam experience or CIA operative with Vietnam experience. That was kind of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. You had to have that that Vietnam experience if you were a protagonist or main character in uh, in the 80s. Um, so I was reading all that. And at the same time, I was reading all these this nonfiction on anything warfare, anything terrorism, anything insurgency um, related. And you know, there wasn't that much of it back then. And with a mother who's a librarian, um, I had this uh, kind of a gateway uh, to- Oh, wow, yeah. Reading. Grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. So uh, it was just a normal part of my life. Like we talked about earlier, a normal part of your life, the seatbelt or having to provide food or protect your family. Well, reading was very natural for me growing up. It was just a part of what we did. Um, so I read a lot, but now a lot of it is for research for the novels. So it's not me like sitting in a hammock reading uh, for enjoyment. It's uh, it's a reading it's fiction exactly to put it yeah. in a novel. So eventually I'll read for fun again. But right now uh, there's so much going on as I build out uh, one right, but also build out a readership on the business side of the house that it leaves very little time for me to actually sit down and enjoy a great novel. Uh, most of it is research for what I'm working on. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast? Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, 
rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. More with New York Times bestselling author of The Devil's Hand by Jack Carr after the break. Yeah. Well, they've said, and I'm sure you've heard this, you know, a very well-read person makes for a very well, or a really, what's the saying? Well-read reader is a, is a, a great writer basically is what it says. You have to be really real well-read to be a great writer. And I think you're proving that true. Now I'm the opposite. See, I don't really read that much. I put these books together and that's why half of it is illustrated. I just took the easy way out. (laughs) They're great illustrations, by the way. Amazing. I love them. I love all that stuff you have going on. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so, like, I love when people do things that are a little bit different. It's not like, you know, you saw someone else doing something and we're like, Oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. Dude, look at her. Maybe this guy made some money off that. You know, it's like, no, you, you have your own thing. Like you're creating this genre essentially of the, of this, this survival, this mindset. Um, and you're building it out in a way that's different than other people out there that might have a survival book or, a leadership book or, you know, whatever else, like it's different and you can sense that immediately. And that's why you're leading the way in, uh, in everything you're doing. Yeah. I appreciate that, buddy. Um, yeah. And that's the goal is, well, number one, you know, I, like you, for me, these, these were, these projects at the time had nothing to do with money. It was just something fun and creative that I wanted to put together. I've always wanted to kind of put those types of things together. Um, and then, I love that uh, story where you, you like gave the whole program to was it the Wall Street Journal or, or whoever yeah. was. You like built this whole thing out and like gave it to him for like 20 bucks or something. Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was for Escape the Wolf. And I yeah, I still kick myself for not doing any research on proper pricing when you have a Fortune 500 asking you for something. But yeah, that's a whole other that's a whole other story. <laughs> story. I love it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's how you learn, right? You fall on your face a couple of times, get up and you go, okay, that, yeah, I didn't like that. So let's not, let's not, let's watch out for things you can trip over, you know, simple stuff in life. But, uh, okay. Let's get now the juicy stuff, right? You got, which came first? Did, did Chris Pratt come as a friend first or, or, um, you met him after your book was, uh, basically optioned for uh, Amazon. Yeah. So it's kind of a unique story and it doesn't uh, lend itself to just that uh, one word answer of what came first. It was, uh, I got a call from a a buddy uh, whose uh, name is Jared Shaw and uh, he was very secretive about it. But now that he has an actual role in this uh, series coming up, he's not going to be able to stay secret much longer. But uh, team guy buddy that uh, called me out of the blue in November of 2017 and the book wasn't coming out till March of 2018. So had a few months there and I got a call, hadn't talked to him in about five years and he calls me out of the blue and he says, uh, Hey man, first he asked me if I remembered him. And I was like, of course I remember you. I was like, oh, and he said, well, Hey man, I always wanted to call you and say, thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams. And I couldn't even remember what it was. And he said, you sat me down in your office. You talked to me about transition. You introduced me to people in the private sector. Nobody else cared enough to do anything close to that. And I always wanted to say, thank you. And I was like, of course, man, how's it going? And uh, he said, well, it's going great, but I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. I have this thing called a galley, which is like a rough draft I can send you. I learned what a galley was like a week before. Um, yeah. uh, I'm like, yeah, I'll send you one if you want to check it out. And uh, he said, yeah, I'd love to do that. But I'd also like to give one to a friend of mine. And I was like, who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. It's like, oh. And even more interesting is that as I was writing, I thought of Chris Pratt playing the main role of James Reese. 
And I had Whoa. no idea there was a connection to him. And I also pictured Antoine Fuqua uh, directing. And of course he did Training Day and Church of the Sun and Magnificent Seven and The Equalizer and Shooter. And um, and he's the guy who's directing it now. But anyway, Jared gets it, Amazing. reads it in uh, November, early December, just to make sure it's not horrible. Uh, and he forgets, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, because he has political, we all have political capital. You got to, you know, make sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he's like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, and he gave it to Chris. And Chris read it on December 28th of 2017. And then he called the first week in January when adoption it. So uh, then we met up after that and got to be good friends. So, so that's uh, got it. So, t- I mean, I've heard different ways of, you know, how you get a book on the big screen. Now, these days, it's more like on the small screen, but still just as great. Um, and, you know, having an A-lister walk it for you is definitely the better way to go, right? I think so. Uh, you know, I didn't do any research into that. I just growing up, because when you want to be an author, when you're in a SEAL, when you're like, let's say fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and you're reading Tom Clancy and you're reading David Morrell, you're reading Nathan Nelson DeMille. Yeah. As a kid at you know, 11 years old, 12 years old, you're thinking, or I was thinking anyway, of course, I will be a SEAL out with an 80% attrition. Okay, I'm going to be in that 20%. Like that's about the thought that I gave it. Yeah. I'm training and I'm doing pull-ups and I'm putting hills and I'm shooting my bow off the roof in an angle. I'm doing all these sorts of things. And then as on the writing side of the house, I'm like, well, of course, after that, I'll write a number one New York Times bestseller, a series. Um, and then it'll get optioned by an A-list star and it'll be optioned by uh, an amazing director and they'll put this thing together. And I was just, that's about the thought I gave it. Like, that's what's going to happen. Uh, so I never thought of, did any research into how to do it or different paths you can take or uh, and what are the odds of it happening? Like, I, you know, I didn't pay attention to any of that stuff. Um, but I think now looking back that, yeah, you want an A-lister to walk it through because otherwise you're just part of, it's just an idea and you're yeah. hoping to get an A-lister attached. You're hoping to get a director attached. If you have this thing with a director and an A-lister already attached to it, and this world already exists, uh, it's not just an idea that you're trying to sell out of thousands of ideas, out of thousands of pitches that all these different production companies are hearing. Oh no, you have this guy who's selling tickets to movies, uh, both uh, both actor and director, and they're in your office right now, sitting down with a showrunner slash screenwriter and the product telling you that they want to do this. Well, that just took a whole load of questions and a whole (laughs) lot of work off the table from that production company um, and makes it a whole lot easier to say yes. So in my very limited experience in Hollywood, I would say that, uh, yeah, it's an, it's ideal to have somebody walk it through, but then the opposite can be true as well. I've heard that, that Stallone has always wanted to do uh, something on Edgar Allan Poe. uh, And he's been wanting to do that for uh, well, as long as I've been following him, which is very early, which is Rocky days, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that hasn't happened. So, uh, so I guess it all, there are all sorts of factors that are involved, but yeah, regardless, this was, this was a good way to get, uh, the terminal list brought to, uh, into a series. So I feel very fortunate. Uh, yeah, dude, that's I, I, cause I've had, I think you and I've had this conversation. I've had a hundred deli skills optioned, God, probably six, seven different times. Right. Wow. And to be a show, um, and, and, and the people always had, you know, some pretty cool, but different ideas on how this show would look, you know, one was more of a competition show. Another was more of like a how to deep, you know, do it yourself kind of thing. Um, they were all cool. And, um, but it went the kind of the more traditional route where, you know, you have, you have a, a production company hit you up and say, Hey, we want to option it. And then they, uh, they put together 
a pilot and then they throw the pilot around to, you know, six or seven networks. And then you get a network to hopefully say yes. And then you got to wait on that. Yes. Because then now it's okay. Money, right? Now we got to fund it. And then you wait for the green light. So I had the green light all the way through discovery, right? And, uh, it was a hundred percent a go with money attached. Everything was great with filming dates, this and that. And then just get a call one day and go, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? Yeah. What so they, they get, they get distracted by shiny objects all the time out there yeah. in LA. It's like, damn. Yeah. yeah. What do they yeah. call production purgatory or something like that? There, there's a word <laughs> yeah. for it. And that's where most projects end up from what I understand. Yeah. So yeah, very fortunate to have somebody championing no, through crushing it. Uh, the <clears throat> Timing was good too. It wasn't when they optioned it because it's like, early January, 2018. So there's no COVID yet. Everybody is not just uh, stuck in their house. But of course, as we get closer and closer to making it a reality, well, things kind of shift and things were shifting anyway. Things are shifting. People like yeah. to be at home, like to be watching these things at home anyway. But, uh, but of course with COVID that made it mandatory that you're staying home. And now theaters are just now starting to, starting to get up, back up and running. But uh, this lends itself more, uh, for a series than it does a hour and a half movie. I love that it's an eight part series because you really get to explore. And of course there are things that are different than the book. And I knew that going in because uh, the book book first blood by David Morrell written in 1972, very different than the movie with Stallone. Um, right. Fantastic. So, yeah. uh, so I knew that things would change. You're telling a story in a visual medium, but I could not be happier with how it's going. And man, Chris is crushing it. People that just see him as like the, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy guy or Andy Dwyer or whatever else, like they're going to be shocked. And actually when they see the trailer, if they were like, ah, can you pull this off? When they see the trailer, we have a trailer for the first three episodes and it's just kind of an in-house thing, but I'm trying to get them to get it out there because it's so good. Um, and you'll see that and go, oh wow, this guy's pulling it off because it's yeah. legit. Chris is crushing it. That's awesome, man. And so, all right. So you got Chris Pratt, you got him playing. And by the way, for everyone listening, this is terminal list is going to be a series. It's in production mode right now for Amazon. Um, and it'll be available when what's the projected date? I'm not sure they finish in the next few months here. Uh, it takes a yeah. long time to film to get eight hours of content for a show like that. That's oh, uh, I bet. That's yeah. a lot of time. So uh, they'll finish it up at the end of the summer and then it goes into post-production uh, and whatever, you know, editing and all that sort of thing, getting packaged up and getting it all smoothed out and color treatments and all everything that they have to do in post-production uh, through the end of the year. And then who knows after that at some so point. So sometime in 22. I think so. Yeah, it should, yeah. should be there on a date. Yet. Now, are they already talking about, you know, moving on, continuing Terminal List or will it, uh, ju- will the name stay the same, but just still follow the character even though it might be covering stories from uh, some of the other books or what were some great, of the That is a great question. And uh, <laughs> I thought about that until somebody brought it up to me uh, in these discussions uh, it, with the production company and everything. And, you know, the next book is True Believer. So it would go on. Probably wouldn't be a next year thing because Chris's schedule, it's all Chris's and Antoine's schedule. Like what does their schedule look like? Um, and do they want to do this amount of time towards a series when they could do like three movies? So there's all sorts yeah. of things in and then you have managers and age, you have all these people involved. But yeah, we're talking about true believer and someone brought that up and I thought, you know what? Yeah. If, if this one does well out of the gate and people are associating Chris Pratt with this character, with something called the terminal list. Well, I think it makes sense to call season two, 
the terminal list, you know, dot, dot, true, true believer. True believer. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise you're like starting over. Uh, you're not right. building off that base. I mean, you are to a certain extent, but you're losing a few people that uh, are distracted also by all the other things that, uh, that you're distracted by these days. So make sense to build <laughs> yeah. off that foundation and keep that name uh, the same, I think, going forward. So that, was, that was my input anyway. Yeah, no, that's uh, God, such a great progression in such a short period of time for you, man. I'm proud of you, and it's uh, it's it's just an awesome thing. Um, okay, so just real quickly, let's go. Maybe give the listeners, you know, maybe some of them want to be writers. Maybe don't even have to relate to writing. Maybe it's just, you know, the three big takeaways to achieving your goals. Let's generalize it. And what would you say those big three things are to get that you've used to get where you are, but could apply to, to anyone doing anything? Well, the main one is not to pay too much attention to those odds, because there's always going to be people out there. They're going to tell you how hard it is to do something, or do you know the odds of becoming a director in Hollywood? What is, you know, and the implication is obviously what a silly dream. Like you'll never, you know, be an Oscar-winning director. Uh, yeah. Up one day, you'll get a job just like the rest of us. Um, so that's the, the odds don't matter. Yeah, don't pay attention to those odds because okay. if you do, you're wasting bandwidth. Let's say you have this much bandwidth. Uh, well, now you're worried about how hard something is, and that's bandwidth that is not focused on getting where you want to go. So if that's being a seal. Well, guess what? If you're worried about not making it through or how hard it is, well, you're even if it's this much or this much, or this much, depending, like that needs to be focused on preparing yourself physically, mentally, emotionally for going through that training, uh, for getting where you want to go to operate and serve your country in uniform. Um, so don't pay attention to that side of it. You can't control what those odds are. Hey, that's what should be. That was the draw. 80% nutrition. Awesome. I want to test myself there. Now, everything else is going in for me sprinting up the hills where I used to, where I grew up to, to uh, putting a rope in the tree and learning how to rappel down to climbing up onto my roof and shooting that bow towards going under the basketball hoop in the back and like doing these crazy pull-ups, like, you know, different hand positions before CrossFit was a thing because I saw in some pictures, people climbing ropes and doing things in uh, an obstacle course in buds in like soldier fortune magazine or gung ho magazine or whatever, it, whatever it was, a couple of videos that were, that were out, um, men with green faces, uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, so that's, that would be the main one is that, and then, you know, in not, when we're not talking about seals or something physical like that, you can almost, especially today, it's much more of a danger today than it was 30 years ago is you can almost study how to do something too much. Uh, you can spend the rest of your life researching today uh, mm -hmm. because there's an infinite amount of information out there on almost any topic when you go down these rabbit holes online. Um, so you can read, a, how, let's say, how to be a writer. Uh, okay, I can read this book and that book and this book. I can read this person's blog. I can follow this person. Guess what? You're going to have to sit down and actually do the work at some point if you want to be a writer. Uh, but you can do that forever. And if you want to research your novel, guess what? Now that's a whole other thing you can do forever is just research something without actually doing it. So those are yeah. the, those are the main ones right there is uh, not paying attention to those odds and being wary of how much you're researching um, rather than the doing and sitting down to do what you want to do. Cause even if you don't know it, it might be some of this subliminal thing an excuse. I'm going to, I have to do a little more research. I have to do have right, to read right. how to do it. I don't know. I don't know how I got to read this thing. No, you need to sit down and do the work because if you don't definitely not going to happen. Uh, you know, even if you do the work it might not, but if you don't sit down and do the work, it will not for sure. 
So those are the, those are the main ones. Um, yeah, I think you're spot on. And, and the reason I, I mean, it's kind of funny you say the odds thing, cause I did a violent nomad shirt that, cause I used to say it all the time. The odds don't matter. Cause yeah. if you're in control, then you're in control. So, and you know, that's really the key is take control of whatever it is and just move forward and don't worry about all of that peripheral bullshit because it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Get on your path, stay on your path and keep moving. Right. Yeah. But it's um, wasting the bandwidth. It's wasting time. It's wasting yeah. green power that can be devoted to that crap towards getting right. it, getting you moving the ball forward. So, uh, so yeah, it can definitely, it can be certainly be a hindrance. And then of course, you know, along the way I try to pass along to my kids is, uh, uh, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. So yeah, you're doing all that work. Um, you're getting, you're putting that work in, you're moving that ball forward. Well, Hey, you know, along the way you can lend a hand here and there, you can make somebody's day, but sometimes yeah, that's a good one too. I like that, man. Well, thanks for sharing those. Find out how Jack deals with an intruder after the break. Um, man, this has been a great talk. We could go on forever, but now we have to get into your hypothetical scenario. Oh man. Oh, it's been (laughs) all night. I was so worried about this. Yeah, I'm sure. All right. So, you know, for these scenarios, um, you know, it's, uh, sometimes they're a little kooky, a little crazy, but they're definitely fun. Um, the education is in the answers, both your answers, our discussion, um, and the, and the, and the goal is to get people, whether they're around the dinner table or in a cubicle farm, um, to just have these discussions, because as you know, just talking about something, uh, suddenly makes it much easier to deal with if you ever have to face it, right? Just discussing options, discussing what I would do, what someone else would do, thinking about it from time to time. You don't have to be paranoid or crazy about it. You just gotta give it a little bit of time and, um, and it goes a long ways if, uh, if things go bad. Um, so are you ready? Let's do it. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Since you write action thrillers, we want to, uh, have a little fun with this one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for this scenario, you have to take a trip to a cabin in the woods to get some inspiration, clear your head and prepare to write your next book. Sounds like I'm there already. <laughs> um, the cabin, of course, is really nice because your daddy wore bucks and you can afford anything you want now. But it's in the woods and it's kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're all alone. Okay. So uh, the office where you try to work for your ideas for your book is on the ground floor. Um, and there's a desk and a window. Okay. A big oak desk, kind of like Stephen King's, except my guess is you don't snort cocaine from it to write Cujo in 72 hours. No, but now I understand uh, <laughs> why he did, why he did that. Yeah, yes. especially with children. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like you have quiet in uh, the house is, uh, you know, between ten at night and like six in the morning. So yeah, and now I understand. Yeah, you, I know. Me and you are both fans of uh, his book on, on writing, which oh, is basically right. an autobiography. It's so freaking funny, and the shit that he reveals in there. I was, all, I was, I'm still always blown away. The whole like, you know snorting the cocaine and writing these incredible books that have become movies in literally three days. <laughs> but I totally understand now. I think about yeah. that at night when I finally get everybody to bed and I'm just exhausted in here and I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm yeah. so tired. And I think about that exact thing. And I'm like, I, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, take some brain power. I haven't done it. Okay. Yet. So I stick, Tangents. I stick with it. The, the 300s like the, Oh Yeah. Uh, and that'll get your yeah. heart pumping right here. Triple shot. Whew. 
Yeah, yeah, they make uh, those little uh, those little cans. I've seen sold in a couple of convenience stores. I forgot the name of their littler cans. I've been drinking those; those are nice. Yeah, those are good. Um, all right, so outside there is an outdoor shower. Okay, there's a gas can for a generator in case you lose power. Uh, there's also a fire pit with some chairs around it. Um, there's long the long stem matches uh, are kept right next to the fire pit. Okay, um, whoever rented it. The last time, left a few empty wine bottles laying around outside, too, you notice. Okay. Um, the entrance to the trail in the woods is about 15 feet from the cabin. So if you want to go take a little hike, take a break from writing. Um, so now you're sitting down at your desk, and you put some words on a page when you hear footsteps. Okay. You take a look in the hallway, and you see a guy down there inside your uh, cabin with a rifle you are unarmed what this is definitely fiction (laughs) hey exactly um we're we're trying to line this up we're we're trying to line this up with fiction all right all right right. so first question all right do you a step into the hallway and ask the guy what he's doing here or b find your exit which happens to be a window and hop out into the yard yeah, definitely not stepping into the hallway, uh, for sure. <laughs> definitely not stepping into that that fatal funnel. Uh, That's right. But uh, yeah, no. If my sense is I need to get out of there, I'm probably hopping out of there. Um, but uh, you know, there's all those intangibles also that that sixth sense that has kept us alive from the beginning of time up until today. Or most of us uh, uh, had ancestors that had that sixth sense and listened to that gut instinct because we are here today. Um, yeah. And uh, so I would listen to that sixth sense probably. Um, and yeah. uh, told me to get out that window. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going to override that sixth sense and be like, oh, this is probably a nice, a nice. Bro. I'm going to, I'm going to risk everything uh and and on the assumption that this is a nice person that just happens to be lost or maybe he's a hunter or maybe he rented it also or anything like that uh no if that guy's telling me to get out of there guess what i'm getting out of there i think you're i think it's a great idea b is correct sneak around oh sorry i skipped ahead sorry (laughs) hop out of the window all right so for this scenario we're thinking of um you you obviously want to put space between you and a threat, right? Distance equals survivability. You hear me say it all the time. You're hearing me say it again. Um, and if you confront them, I mean, uh, you really don't know the state of mind. Uh, you don't know what's going on. There's no sense in confronting somebody with a gun if you don't have to. We've got all right. there, that's for sure. Next, do you A, hide in the outdoor shower, or B, Sneak around the house and try to see what this guy is doing in your cabin. Yeah, so I'm probably going to looking at that terrain, maybe going to a little high ground there, moving through the trees, get a little, get some visual on the cabin, see if he has any friends out there, see if there's a truck parked down the way, how many people, uh, that sort of thing. And if yeah. it looks a little sketchy, then time to use what uh, my E and E kit, which are my getaway sticks. For those listening, <laughs> those are my legs, and uh, <laughs> I'm running. Yeah. I like it, man. B, yes, correct. You sneak around, try to see what this guy's up to. Um, hiding in the shower. Once again, I tell people all the time, especially in active shooter scenarios, bathrooms are dead ends. There's a reason why those two words were put together, uh, and it's for that reason. Dead end, right? So closet, showers, never a good idea um, when there's a person with a gun because if you can't get out, then you're a sitting duck. So bad idea. All right, so you sneak around, you look in a window, and you see... 
that, you know, he has the rifle drawn. Like, he's actually holding it in a manner that's pretty uh, scary. Mm. Scary guy carrying a gun. Um, he also has a large knife on him, you know, uh, tucked into the back of his belt, all right? Um, so you're thinking, you know, who did this guy? Who, did I piss this guy off? Who, did, who, who pissed this guy off? Why is this guy here? Um, you just came out here to write a book. I mean, come on, what's going on? I'm just a, I'm just an author. Mm-hmm. Um, your cell phone is inside, of course. All right, so that's a tidbit you should know. So you can't call anyone. All right, so do you, A, collect additional defensive supplies around the yard, um, B, break one of the empty wine bottles so that you have a stabbing weapon? Now, these questions get a little harder where both answers could be right, but the only right answer is mine. <laughs> uh, yeah, if there's somebody like look like he's clearing rooms with a knife and a, and a rifle, and I don't have a uh, any sort of weapon whatsoever, and uh, don't really understand what the the scenario is anyway, as far as like what this person is doing there, I have no vested interest, no no wife, no child uh, in there, or coming back down from a hike or anything like that. Then I'm probably turning tail and just moving. Just right, right, right. That's, yeah. uh, but that's, you're forced. You're forced into this. So if I, if you, I know, am you forced, have to uh, yeah, either collect. To, yeah, collect stuff or, or break a wine bottle. Which one do you think makes most sense? Mm, what, what can I collect? Uh, you you saw a lot of stuff around the yard when you approached. Remember? Like the so. like the wine bottle. What else was out there? Uh, I do like the I do like the wine bottle. You know, even even not breaking a wine bottle is is fine without even breaking it. It's a nice little little weapon there. Um, uh, that makes noise. Too. Yeah, to make it. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to make noise, but hitting somebody with a wine bottle, it's not broken over the right. head. That's what I, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, so. but yeah, we got rocks on that fire pit probably. So there I like go. the rock yeah. idea. You're I collecting. Like so you're going to collect, right? Yeah. I like a rock that I can use in my, my hand to hit with, maybe throw, maybe both, uh, have one in both hands, possibly one to throw and one to just friggin' dash, you know, get in there with. So yeah. yeah. Okay, so weapons if I can't turn tail and uh, and get out of there and get that high position, get to my vehicle. Uh, I don't know why I left my weapon in the vehicle, but uh, if I did, <laughs> uh, then I'd be moving moving to that and uh, maybe driving off and maybe calling let let the local sheriff deal with this crazy person. You know, we can fight another day. You know, yeah. So if I go take this person out, then I'm gonna collect some some uh, some weaponry there and uh, and get get ready to do the business. All right, you're collecting. Collecting additional defensive. Good. Okay, so A, you, you are correct. Um, like I said, breaking a wine bottle would uh, give you up to a certain degree, right? So you're going to break something. It's going to make noise. It's nice and quiet out there, so it's not like you're going to be able to hide that sound. Um, and yeah, sure, once you broke it, you could have a little stabby weapon of some sort, but really it's not worth making the noise. Um, you grab two empty wine bottles. You fill them up with gas. All right, because you are, uh, you know, well, you're a well-read, skilled individual. Yeah, this is legit right here. Um, you fill them with fuel. I feel the and, 18 uh, background. You know that <laughs> five to ten minute montage as they're getting stuff ready. This is what's happening. I like it. Yeah. Did you say A team? A team. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had to build oh, something. Hold, Every episode, they had to build something at the end. Yeah. When it's kind of like yeah, a little bit totally of MacGyver, but it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's do a little tribute here. One of my uh, alarm features is definitely um, something. I can do the whole thing from memory. Yeah. Yeah. 
else can help. And if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A team. Yes. <laughs> Still gives me goosebumps. I love it. It's but uh, yeah, so I would you can't to beat that, man. I'd Come love to on, eighties hot tub time machine and go back. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, we're getting off on a tangent here, but it's so much fun. What about? Okay, so we're gonna do a game within a game. So name, name this. Uh, what's what's this one? Well, I'm not the kind. A fall guy. Come on. Come on. <laughs> the fall guy. Of course, the fall guy. Only about twenty percent of our listeners are gonna actually know what the hell we're talking about. You know oh that, right? my goodness. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, next one. That truck. Oh, Airwolf, of course. Airwolf, yes. Right. Second to uh, Blue Thunder. Was it Blue Thunder? Blue yeah. Thunder came out also. So I saw it <laughs> the other day, and it said, uh, "It said um, uh, pictures can't uh, can't tell uh, can't talk or can't tell uh, can't, can't play music." And it showed, That's right. It showed the helicopter, and it's like, yeah, 80s kids. It's like 80s kids. <laughs> Night I love Rider. it. Night Rider. Night Rider, yeah. Now most people do actually know this because it's kind of kept. It's it somehow has kept its uh, popularity oh, there with uh, memes and stuff. Oh, that's great. Oh man, but my favorite that one takes me back. is uh, the. Uh, I mean, I love the Fall Guy track. It had a little storage compartment in that to smuggle people, if you remember. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but uh, the uh, Simon and Simon Rick Simon's Power Wagon truck, like that thing was legit, and I just was researching it a couple days ago, actually, for uh, for a specific reason. But I found out in 1979, 1980, there were different packages, just like there are today. You know, you can get the safety package today, yeah. the towing package today. Guess what the Dodge Power Wagon, one of the options was in 1980? The Macho Package. Which, yeah, it's a real <laughs> no <thing>. way. <laughs> It was so awesome. That was who's not checking the macho package on that I know. back in 1980. So what a great way to let guys' egos spend the extra money. Okay. <laughs> you can get that today. No, we have the safety package. You have this. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Back then, macho package. Sign me up. All right. Last, last theme song. Then we'll get back into this game. All right. Here we go. Come on. Come I mean, on. That nice. is the Navy Come SEAL on. of all Navy SEALs. Uh-huh. Right Magnum yep, my favorite. My favorite. <laughs> we still, right, we have theme that. songs like that today. Can anyone tell me a theme song from a show? I know. Yeah, I can I can sing the whole Jefferson song, you know? Nice. Like, right? I mean, who can't? Moving on up. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so... Just as a friendly reminder, you grab the two empty wine bottles, you fill them with fuel, and you go ahead and grab the long stem matches because you are a member of the A-team. Former, mm-hmm. retired A-teamer. Yeah. Okay, next, do you A, take your gas-filled wine bottles and matches and go hide in the woods, continue to uh, scope things out, or B, grab a bar of soap as well from the outdoor shower? Oh, yes, the bar is open. Yes, who saw Fight Club? uh, (laughs) Well, we all know how to, how do you make uh, gasoline gel, Jack? Yeah, I think I'd have to go and and Google it again just to be, just to be safe. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there is, is that the shaving in the soap? Yeah, you you do you can do shavings of a bar of soap into gasoline and it will gel, it'll turn into napalm. It's the fat though, right? Is it the isn't there some sort of a fat? It depends on the soap these days. I think there's probably probably different kinds of soap out there now that you might have to to think about it. I think uh, most bars of soap have gelatin of some sort uh, as a as a base. So, and I think it is that that reacts with the fuel and turns it into almost. 
Yeah, like jelly. Napalm. Yeah. You know, you know where napalm was uh, developed? Uh, oh, uh, in the in the uh, rice fields of Vietnam. No, no. <laughs> it was developed at Harvard. Oh wow! The first test of napalm was on the Harvard soccer field, which is on the Harvard Business School. Those side. crazy liberals! Yeah. How dare they? Yeah, they do not <laughs> advertise that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you won't find that too many places. Malcolm Gladwell just did a he had a podcast on it. It's part of his uh, book called The Bomber Mafia. It's uh, fantastic. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's a good that. little yeah. I like that. That's good you debate go, material yeah, right there. You still go to the exact uh, classroom uh, lab at Harvard where napalm was developed. Right, love it. Okay, that's a that's good tidbits. Um, all right. So so you grab the bar of soap, um, and you add it to your Molotov uh, cocktails, right? Now you got this, uh, now you got like the ultimate napalm in a bottle. Um, next, do you rush in through the front door and confront the guy? Or B, sneak out into the woods and, uh, oh, we, we, th- you answered this, right? Get your eyes on. Yeah, I'm going yeah, to go up and go with plank. B. You go with B. Hopefully you'll get a little elevation there. That's uh, right. Concealment, some cover, and uh, observe for a little bit if for some reason I'm not just leaving the area. Gotcha. Yep. Um, when your enemy is armed and you are not, you know, staying hidden is, uh, is always a good idea. Um, especially if you just need to figure out what the plan is and, uh, you're, you're on the fly creating a plan that I, I think sounds pretty cool. Um, uh, so you sneak off into the tree line, you stay hidden and you watch the house. Uh, you see him searching the house, uh, with his rifle still drawn, which kind of odd, right? He's like clearing the place. Um, uh, so, you know, what the hell does he want from Jack? That's the question. So do you, A, Or is uh, it even throw... me after? Is it even me after? Who knows? Maybe it's a crazy deputy sheriff out there out of uniform. Maybe <laughs> it's, a, it's a game warden. Yeah, exactly. Maybe uh, he thinks somebody else is in, the ha- in there, or uh, he's after something that someone, the previous guest, left behind. I mean, lots of lots of questions. Uh, there you go. Uh, Good. I like it. I like, I like where you're going with all that. It gives people something to think about, and they should always think that way, you know? Um Okay, so do you A, throw the Molotov cocktail through the window and burn the place down, or B? Bit aggressive, my first uh, time. Without knowing what's going on. (laughs) B, slowly back further into the woods, keeping eyes on him, but put a little more distance between the two of you. Yeah, probably moving on out. I mean, uh, a bit aggressive to toss the, to burn the place down. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's the owner. Maybe I rented it on VRBO. Maybe he's coming in. Who knows? Yeah, Yeah, maybe he didn't get the message. Who yeah. knows what's going on? So, uh, yeah, probably not going to burn it to the ground just yet. Yeah, good it's idea. Okay, so distance is always a good idea. Um, he hasn't yet seen you. Uh, so, you know, really the advantages is still in your court to a certain degree. Um, as you move further away uh, in an attempt to disappear into the woods, um, you keep eyes on the enemy. But now it looks like he sees you, okay? Mm-hmm. He takes aim and he fires a shot in your direction. He misses. He's not even close. Uh, so now, do you A, throw the Molotovs, or B, take cover behind the larger trees, stay low, and zigzag anytime you can when you're moving from cover to cover? Yeah, it's time to, time to move on out of there. Continue to put distance. He's not, uh, uh, it's not effective fire quite yet. Uh, and that, that cover concealment, uh, but that, uh, that cover rocks, big trees, that sort of thing. And uh, how big a boy is this we're talking about here? Like, <laughs> like he's a runner? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think he's probably uh, no. He's probably not too good at running. So All right, he's a little, little, little portly. I'm, uh, I'm probably gonna yeah use that. Get some okay. Good idea. Going. Taking cover. Yes, cover, cover. Difference between cover is it stops bullets. Concealment will hide you. So if you don't have any other options, it's great to hide yourself so that you can't be in the the sight or the scope of your bad guy. But taking cover, which is hiding behind something that stops bullets, is even a better idea. I'm We're still very upset with objects. myself for not being armed, by the way. I don't know what's going on with it. <laughs> I'm really upset no, with myself for that. Yeah, well, I know. It's fiction. It's the fiction world. Sorry. Yeah. Um, once you... Uh, all right, so you know he misses you with the first shot, and uh, it's unlikely that you would throw a Molotov cocktail that far, let's face it. Uh, the trees are thick and dense, um, and uh, you just keep moving from cover to cover, concealment to concealment, and uh, moving out. Um, once you've moved deeper into the woods, you found cover behind a very large tree. So do you A, climb the tree and hide up at the top, or B, move parallel to the location of the cabin, kind of flanking it and uh, in your enemy and and kind of maybe get a different angle on him. Yeah, let's flank. Let's not climb up yeah, the tree flank. quite well, yet. Let's, uh, flanking let's, is let's a, just flank. You can flank through winds, yep. Yep, that's right. So you flank him. Uh, he's lost eyes on you in that dense forest. Um, and he might see you and shoot you while you climb a tree. So we don't want to waste any time doing that. Um, and plus, once you're up, it's not as difficult to get down in a timely manner if you need to. So uh, you circle back towards the cabin. Um, now, uh, now he's out in the yard, right? So do you A throw both your Molotov cocktails or B throw one near him as a distraction. Well, I'm still one stuck on not being armed and two, why I'm not continuing to run away. Uh, <laughs> but if I am going, going back to, uh, to burn, burn this guy down, you saying he's in the, in the front yard. Yeah. He's in, in the, the front, front yard. yard. Yeah. Man. Throw both or just throw one? Well, I'm still just one, yeah. Yeah, okay. Then not, right, yeah, I'm not expending both of my rounds. In, uh, Good in, idea. In all right, so you throw one Molotov. Got it. Um, all right, so the fire serves as a great distraction. Um, and if you miss, you know, you don't really, you know, you don't want to go from two Molotov cocktails to zero. So we've established that. You just want to do one at a time. Um, he turns towards it, right, the fire. Um, he's distracted, and now his back is to you. So, last question. A, run away while he is distracted, or B, burn him up with number two? You know, I've, I've, I guess for whatever reason, I've decided not to run away here. Multiple, my multiple <laughs> opportunities that I've had. You're not allowed to run. Yeah, so for some reason, I've decided not to do that. Uh, so, yeah, it's time to burn this guy down, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sad me. I've, I've, uh, I've flashed back. You need to eliminate the threat. So, yeah, time to burn it, burn him down. Let's, uh, let's finish this guy off. All right. So, yes, you've identified several times that the right answer isn't necessarily here. But, uh, and that is just increase distance, get away from the threats, and uh, be done with it. Um, but we obviously with these scenarios, we're trying to uh, gain different perspectives and also an education um, to a certain degree on different things. So um, either obviously could be correct in theory. And for the listeners out there, it may be best to choose the less violent path and escape. But for anyone who is trained in the ways of the uh, violent nomad or a James Reese, 
you're just going to go ahead and go head to head with an intruder just because you enjoy the challenge more well, than you enjoy really the escape. Opportunity to train. <laughs> yeah. Providing, providing the opportunity would almost be rude not to take it. That's right. And as the old saying goes, it's uh, a fight isn't even until it's it's three versus one Navy SEAL, right? <laughs> three versus one Navy SEAL. Yeah. it's even. Yeah. And I heard a long time ago, this old uh, Special Forces guy was part of Project Delta in Vietnam, um, which was commanded by Charlie Beckwith, who was the uh, first commanding officer of Delta Force. Um, this guy, he told me, hey, you don't want to just survive a fight. Like, that's a low bar. You want to prevail. And he told yeah. me, like, when I was maybe 20. And uh, I've never, never <laughs> forgotten that. So it's, there's a difference between surviving and prevailing. So anyway, yeah. prevailing side. Yeah, I like it. No doubt either. Um, well, hey, needless to say, you got 10 out of 10, which means you survived this podcast, Jack. Yes. Okay. Awesome. I'm still going to yes. be up tonight being like, why the heck wasn't I armed in that? Yeah, man. Yeah, you did great. Great interview. Great hanging out with you. Let's point everyone in your direction. So where can people find you? I know it's pretty easy these days since you're you know, becoming a uh, very popular guy, but uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so the website is officialjackcar.com, and there's a, a blog that gets updated quite a bit. My podcast stuff is on there uh, called Danger Close Beyond the Books with Jack Carr. So that's on the website. Uh, different blogs are on the website. I was just part of the SIG Hunter Games out here in Wyoming, which was pretty pretty cool. Got second place out there. Um, nice. And, uh, yeah, so that's all. There'll be a blog. It'll come out this week on that. Uh, there's a little gear thing that takes you to Jack Carr USA, where there's a bunch of uh, Jack Carr merch out there um, for those that are interested. And then on the social channels, I am Jack Carr USA and most active on Instagram. Uh, there is a Facebook account, but it just reposts from Instagram every now and again, because as one person, like juggling all of these things is uh, extremely time consuming. So uh, Instagram is where I spend most of my time interacting with people. And I do that because I like to thank people who take a risk on me as an author and then tell a friend. Because really, before Chris Pratt mentioned that he'd optioned it, before I was on Tucker Carlson, before I was on Joe Rogan, it was word of mouth from veterans, from tactical shooters, from hunters, from readers, uh, people that took a risk and then told a friend. They, they used some of that political capital we talked about earlier to say, oh, hey, I think my friend would enjoy this. I'm going to recommend that they listen to it on audiobook or they read it, whatever it might be. So that's what got the book to be a New York Times bestseller. And then Rogan happened and then Tucker Carlson happened and then yeah. made the announcement. So um, so it's really that. And I like to thank people as much as I possibly can on those social channels. I try to thank everybody or at least give them that heart as I'm going through at the end of the night, um, which is harder and harder to do is, uh, you know, as you more people start engaging, but I sincerely appreciate everybody's uh, support. So uh, they can find me at Jack Carr USA and uh, on Twitter, same thing. But uh, most of my engagement is on Instagram. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on Danger Close. It was great hanging out with you on your podcast. Everyone check that out. Go find Jack, follow him, buy his books if you haven't already. And uh, we'll be sitting back waiting for Terminal List to come out on Amazon, hopefully in uh, early 22, but we'll see. And uh, once again, for everyone listening, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And until next time, be safe out there. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>